Listener Production. From the Inside with Peter Ricks. Peter Ricks is an Australian music industry veteran who has spent his life working in and around the music business in Australia. From managing artists like Marsha Hines, John English, Hush and Billy Field to 14 years as the original producer and chairman of the ARIA Music Awards. Along the way, Peter has made a lot of friends and it's some of these friends that you will meet over the course of this series. They are the success stories and the survivors, fascinating characters who have helped steer the Australian music business from the 70s onwards and somehow are all still relevant and thriving today. This episode's guest in particular is someone very close to Peter's own career in the business as a manager. Here's Peter Ricks. If you grew up in Australia in the 70s and you had any affection at all for contemporary music, then you were watching Countdown on Sunday nights on ABC TV. You were also glued to a single AM radio station in each capital city that programmed what they lovingly called Top 40 Radio, being 2SM in Sydney, 3XY in Melbourne, 4IP in Brisbane and 5AD in Adelaide. Today's very special guest was one of those stars who came bursting out of your television through Countdown. Firstly in black and white, and then with the advent of broadcasting in glorious colour, Les Gock and his band Hush dominated the airwaves both on radio and through their many Countdown appearances. It was a five-year exuberant ride through an era of Australian music that is unlikely to be repeated, and one of its defining moments was Hush performing Boney Moroni on Countdown as the record hit number one in Melbourne and number four nationally in September 1975. All the colour, all the glitz, all the high heels, everything about it was a show of success. Les Gock has gone on to serious success as a composer, a producer, a serious businessman, and these days as a sound designer. Lovely to have you at the microphone, Uncle Les. Thank you, Uncle Pete. (laughs) (laughs) I'd best declare, as you just heard, that for a large part of my delinquent youth, I was the manager of Hush. We were together through the first half of the 70s, and I've always believed that managing the band was the best education that I could have ever had. Can I tell the story of how... Hang on. Yeah, come on. I've got to finish my script. Ever had in how to survive the music business. Every day of my journey through that band was a learning curve and every moment of my journey with them was quite joyous. Was it joyous for you, Les? And vice versa, yes. So what happened Now you're going to take over. Yeah, I'm going to take over now. Uh, So what happened was I was in um, a a band where we we played for free once a year um, because we only wanted to play music that was absolutely obscure. Um, We hated commercial music. That was our mantra. Uh, and this little band that I met at school and, and so forth, uh, we entered a thing called the Hoadley's Battle of the Bands. Ah. Yes, good old Hoadley. It should come back. If only Hoadley's came back. 
The, go- the Violet Crumble Bar has a life of its own, surely. So. Oh, absolutely. With Violet Crum- Crumble Bar, Battle of the Bands would be great. Um, so uh, this band, I remember the two songs, we were allowed to play two songs in this heat in Cabramatta. One was, and no one in the world knows this song. I mean, it's so obscure. It's a song called Laundromat by Rory Gallagher. Nobody, nobody would know that song. And then the other song, which we thought, oh, we better do something kind of popular. So we we had a go at doing um, 10 Years After's um, Going Home from oh, yeah. the version from, from Woodstock. Yeah, good song. Anyway, in that particular audience, look, we got a pretty good response because, because there were a lot of uh, drugged out surfies in the crowd and all that kind of stuff. But also in, on our heat was this other band we thought, a oh, horrible girly band, you know. Uh, they were called Sherbet. Um, uh, and we thought, oh, yeah. They'll never get anywhere. They'll never get anywhere. They sing all these harmonies and it was all so girly. Oh, my God. Was, was there lots of, in those days, lots of satin and things? They had, they were sort of dressed up in a girly kind of way. Look, it was just hideous. Uh, but anyway, they won. Um, <clears throat> but when I walked off stage, um, a couple of guys came up to me who kind of, they kind of looked like they were certainly in a band and then I recognised them and they were in the heat the week before that my band and I went to see, and I can't remember where it was, but wherever the heat was, uh, these guys had been in the band that won the week before and uh, and they were from this band called Hush. Um, and these two guys walked up and I thought, oh, yeah, those two, yeah, that's from, yeah, that, that was another girly band that I didn't like. <laughs> um, a lot of girly bands in those days. Were, everyone was girly. Nobody played Laundromat by, you know. Rory Gallagher. Gallagher, God. Um, anyway, <clears throat> so these guys came up to me and they said, um, look, uh, yeah, that was pretty cool, man. Um, and that's probably because... You know, the, I only play one way. You know, I get on stage and then I have to throw the thing around. I have to sort of go nuts and all that. That's just what I do. Anyway, they thought that was interesting. But more interesting was that Rick, who was one of the people who was there, was Chinese. Mm. And I think Smiley, who, who was also there, just saw this vision of bookends. We have one Chinaman on one side and a Chinaman on the other side. Yeah, that would look cool, you know. Um, I'm sure that was what was going through their minds. Anyway, they said, look, we're looking for a guitar player because I think um, uh, their guitar player was Robin, Robin Jackson. Um, He'd had enough already. The pressure was too much. Well, his girlfriend had enough, I Mm. think. And so they were looking for it. Anyway, so they said, "Would you know, would you come? I thought, well, why would I? I've got this band. We play once a year. I mean, what what, what, What were you doing? Had you left school? <clears throat> uh, no, yeah, I was in uni. I just started uni and so, so we got a gig once a year at the architecture faculty um, playing in, uh, all night. And I remember one night um, one of the guys who got up and jammed with us was Dennis Tech. Oh, right. Um, so Radio that, Birdman. Radio Birdman. Well, that's how far back it goes. Um, I thought he was a crap guitar player too. Anyway... Uh, Your opinion sometimes led to success at the other end. Yeah, maybe, I don't know. Um, anyway, um, so uh, anyway, these guys said, look, you know, we, we do like a, a gig a week. You know, I thought, geez, that's pretty good. That's pretty damn, you know, that's impressive. Anyway, I told my other mates, I said, oh, look, I, you know, they gave me their number, but I'm not, you know, not that interested. And they said, why not? That's a gig a week. That would be fantastic, you know. 
I said, really? You, you think so? So anyway, I took this meeting and this meeting was in Glebe. And um, uh, so I met the rest of the band uh, and they all kind of looked pretty cool. I mean, they were like a proper band and like a proper band house. It was all very exciting. And they had a Ford Transit van. Ford Transit van with hush on the side. And a PA. It doesn't get more professional than that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they and they had yeah, a what manager. What year was this? They said they had a manager, yeah, yeah, and they said, "But just uh, we got to warn you, <laughs> you're going to meet this guy, Peter Ricks, and honestly, just don't step out. Like he is, he's you know scary, he's a very very scary guy." So <clears throat> I, I would like to point out I was two years older than the band, which is the only reason that's so, scary. Uh, but typically, and, I, and I've learned that this is, was going to be the pattern from there on in, um, he was about an hour and a half late. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was was part of the keep the fans waiting trick, you know. It's like, yeah, no, Peter's on his way, he's on his way, you know, he's a busy guy, you know. He was like, I don't know, you were 23 or something. Yeah, yeah. mate, 22 probably. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. Here comes this um, uh, man who walks in and says, oh, you look like a manager. He had a suit and everything. And so, so that was the first time I met you. Ah. Yeah. And, but that, that you, when joining the band, because that was a major change for them, because the, I mean, I'll tell just a little mm. bit, but you is Robin had decided to go and he was quite stressed out about being in a band that did one show a week, to be blunt. Mm. But um, they had quite a fan base in Sydney of young girls playing suburban dances, which is sort of not, you don't see much of that anymore. And the keyboard player was actually working in a record company. Mm. And the only reason that I was even around was that I used to run another dance in uh, on a Friday night in the middle of town that I would book Hush for. And then one day they turned up and said, oh, here's a... Here's a record contract which um, which Warner Brothers, who, was, who Chris was working for, had offered them, but you felt very much that it was a tokenist gesture. Somehow, between that offer and them recording, you turned up and, of course, the, the band became far harder-edged when you arrived in the building. Do you remember those days of the Saturday nights and... Three jobs in a night in the back of the van. Absolutely, do I remember? I remember better than I remember what happened last week. <laughs> um, uh, but it was the way you gigged. Um, you would do well. Firstly, the gigs actually existed. I, I should go back a bit, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong uh, here. This is what uh, this is uh, my understanding of the history of it. Is that we were a band that had a, 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 an underage following. Um, we did make a name for ourselves in a pub, the Brighton pub, um, and what started off with about 20 or 30 people, you know, when we first started, within a month or two was 1,200 people uh, and they were queued around and around the block. Um, um, we, we knew we were onto something. The band was a good band. Yeah, and, and, and it rocked and it, we made a massive name for ourselves uh, just in that kind of environment. We knew that we, you put us in front of an audience, doesn't matter how big it is, we know we'll do something. Um, but the, I think the genius that uh, you had was to uh, say, look, there's no point playing pubs because the pub crowd isn't ultimately going to be our crowd. The crowd that we want to talk to is the 14-year-olds and the 15-year-olds 
and they can't go into a pub legally. So we started playing, organising gigs at town halls, basketball, stadiums, surf life-saving clubs, you know, all that kind of stuff so that we could actually get, um, um, you know, underage people there. Um, and there was no OH&S, so it's fabulous. We could do whatever we liked. <laughs> well, yes. The, 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 the biggest problem with that world, Uncle Les, was that it was always much more difficult to collect the money afterwards yes. in those moments. Yeah. But, but the thing is that um, the genius of it, which I, you know, I've, I've often thought um, that what we did was we cut our teeth on playing not only a lot, but, but on a Saturday night we would do three gigs one after the other. We would be in curl, curl, one minute. We would hop in the back That's of the right. van, sw- all sweat. Tar- uh, Tarrant Point would have been number then two. Then go to Tarrant Point, which we'd go, Peter, you asshole. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's true. And then we'd go to some other gig after that in, you know, Cabramat, I don't know, whatever. But the thing, the point is that these gigs existed and not only that, Every every place that we played like that seemed to have 1,500, 2,000 people, whatever it was. Les Gock. In a moment, Les looks back at the power of Countdown in driving chart success for Hush and what it took for the band to have Countdown's number one song of 1975. So the remembering, you know, it's important for you to put this into context for the for everyone that's listening, is that... On one side, there was you and there was sort of Sherbet and there was a couple of others which you'll probably talk about. But on the other side, there was Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs. Yeah. And we were on the same label. You were on the – Hush was on the same label as Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs. And you went into a studio in Sydney um, down on the Haymarket in those United days. United Sound. Sound. And I think the budget for that first album from memory was $12,000. And we invited the Hush fan club to it. So it was, the album was called Loud and Life. Again, a piece of genius because um, what, um, the, I, I, what, from what my memory is, the, the, al- the record company thought, there's no way we're going to do an album with you guys. You've only had like a half a hit. Um, you know, yes, you've got a big following in Sydney, but I mean, you know, I mean, to, to commit the money to, to do an album, it just doesn't make sense at this stage of your career. Somehow, between you and, you know, uh, Chris Nolan or whatever you... It was Tony Hogarth. Tony, Tony Hogarth, okay. Convince them that, look, okay, let's do it really, really cheaply. Here's three hours in the studio or whatever it is. Go in there and knock yourselves out. So, fine. You know, we just do our live set and... And then you wheeled in the fan club, who we knew were going to go nuts anyway. Uh, and so the whole concept is really genius from a, a marketing and from all that point of view. Uh, we just got up on stage and just sort of did the set once through, bang. Um, no overdubs, no anything. That's it. And, and it was called Loud and Live. And, and get the feeling was in the middle of that there somewhere, though, wasn't it? No, I don't think it was. It was a separate um, recording. Single. Yeah, separate recording. Right. And Loud and Live was just this album on its own. The fans, anyway, it, it went gold. Um, well, the story hmm. is that they released it, Warner Brothers, because they were believed that you weren't going to have any success, hmm. released it the week after they released More Ass Than Class, yeah, the right. Billy Thorpe record, Yeah, and you sold more copies. Yeah. And they yeah. never forgave us. <laughs> 
But I loved Billy and I loved Billy at that period and it yeah. was much but it was, you know. But we were heading, we were the forerunners of uh, a wave. We were the new wave heading in a different direction. Yeah. It was the transition, wasn't it? Was the transition no twenty-minute sol- solos, no drum solos, no um, you know drug crazed, you know um, denim clad, whatever. Yeah, we yeah. we were we were much more um, uh, what Keith, our singer, brought out from the UK was this whole other thought, mm. which was we're there to entertain, we're there to get on a stage and just put on. A God or money great show, and uh, and a part of that is getting dressed up, mm. and a part of that is just who we are as a stage act, and certainly audience participation, all that kind of stuff. And um, we were the, the polar opposite of um, Billy and and the whole group of people who I happen to have admired mm. as musicians, but but I knew that where we were heading was the the new phase, and so. Tell us the journey into because serendipity was that Countdown arrived, mm. and that wasn't that long after the first album, was it? No, it was. Um, <coughs> we um, I think we'd started recording in Melbourne. Melbourne was the centre of the universe. It's uh, uh, it may very well, you know, the pendulum may swing back that way, but um, Sydney wasn't the centre of the universe for a number of things. Certainly, certain businesses and so forth. Uh, but the music industry, Melbourne was the centre of the universe. It had the best recording studios. It had the, you know, uh, best of kind of everything. And, All the clubs were there. And the clubs were there. And it was the hippest, coolest, yeah, as a, you know, from, from music point of view, uh, Melbourne really rocked then. So you had to go down to Melbourne and, and try and, and make it. And um, <clears throat> hence, you know, I mean, Countdown, it, it made a hell of a lot of sense that Countdown came from Melbourne. I think Happening 70 and all those all came out of... Mm. That, uh, uh, that yeah, yeah. yeah, and so Rusty uh, Wiley, but you couldn't uh, have a marriage uh, more suited than the advent of colour television, um, which is and and so Countdown was the beginning, you know, towards the beginning of of that, and then you have a band like us as the forerunners, where our whole focus, our whole thing was we were outrageously dressed. Um, you originally put us into um, uh, costumes made by the opera company and they were still kind of probably the most outrageous and the best costumes we ever had because these things, I, I mean, mine was a gold lame jumpsuit that was absolutely, there was no guessing, you know, what was underneath the jumpsuit, you know, <laughs> You dressed to the left, I understand. Yes, that's right. And um, and uh, with the floor to, um, uh, you know, arms, you know, from from the arm down to the floor. Uh, um, there was uh, a capey thing, wasn't it? No, it was just a, like sleeves that went uh, down to the thing, which made it absolutely impossible to play guitar. <laughs> I, uh, didn't, I didn't care. And gold boots. And and that was all just my outfit, you know. So they totally. I mean, from there's Billy Thorpe on stage one minute, you know, you know, and then then we walk on. And it's like, oh my god, what is that? Um, so uh, it, we were so made for countdown. Mm. We were so right for color television exploding, mm. <laughs> and um, the, the marriage couldn't have been more perfect. And that's why I guess we were successful. So what? <laughs> 
did that do for the band's journey, like live performance career? Um, okay, here are here are the facts and figures. This is um, uh, how I um, so I, I think of things like this. You know. Yeah. Um, I know, Liz. Yes, I, that's right. You you're, you're a ponderer. Yeah, that's I know. Right, I'm a ponderer. Um, we play, you know, successfully. We, you know, we might uh, play to, um, you know, a thousand, two thousand people a night would be, you know, fantastic, and do a couple hundred shows or whatever. That's a lot of people. Um, but one appearance on Countdown back then, and this is when the population was about fifteen million in Australia, or you know, thereabouts. Um, the the show was so huge, and because it was played on the Sunday and then repeated on the Saturday, you would be effectively playing to three million people in Australia in a week. That would be like twice the size of um, the opening of the Olympic Games audience, if you like. Um, it's massive. It would take us. It, I figured it would take us at least ten years to play to that many people, and we were doing it in one week. Um, that's what um, it did for us. It meant that right, and and because the ABC is right across the country in all the country towns and so forth, we were as famous in Udnadatta as we were in uh, Sydney. Yeah, Sydney, as in you know um, Manjimup or wherever. We can go anywhere in the country, and they knew who we were, and they couldn't wait for us to to get there. Um, that's what it did. We were, we were a, a band that was uh, cut our teeth playing live. That's all we know. You know, that's what we were great at, um, putting on a great show. So you put us in front of an audience anywhere in the country and we could travel anywhere in the country. They knew who we were. Um, um, it was just, uh, um, you know, incredible success one after the other. So then somehow in the middle of this madness, because mm. it, it sort of was a bit mad, Along came Robbie Porter mm. and a, ser- a series of seriously big hits. Did that change the band at all? Did it the balance the chemistry in the band, or was it just too busy to worry about? Did Robbie change the band, or well, the, or did the hits the, 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 the band? well, Robbie became the producer of. Well, let, let me talk about Robbie. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, because Robbie's a really interesting guy. His name was Robbie G in the, the 50s. He was had, and he'll regale you with, you know, how many number one records he had. 55 Days of Peking. 50, well, and he had Jezebel or whatever the yeah. songs were. Uh, they were all pretty corny and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, they were number one records. What he uh, instilled in us, which is another part of our education, um, whether we wanted to... Um, whether we're all on board with it or not, was that um, the most important thing is kind of success. In, what I mean by that is you've got to, you've got to shoot for uh, to try and get a number one record. You know, if you've got a number two record, a number five record, or whatever, it's eh, not quite as you've got to go for that number one record. And we just thought this is just that's you know, I mean, how do you how do you do that? But his whole focus was to go for that. To shoot for that, which was which meant that we made um, some uh, uh, creative decisions that that we thought were mm, we weren't that happy with. Yeah, which is uh, my question, really. Yeah, and so Boney Maroney was one of those um, uh, creative uh, decisions that were made by Robbie, who said, uh, "I think you should record this song. It'll be a huge record." And he played us the song, and it was a 
written in the 50s by Larry Williams, uh, and we'd never heard of the song before. Um, He'd had uh, Daddy Cool (coughs) record it beforehand, uh, and he thought it was going to be a big hit then, it wasn't. Um, And so we just thought, what a daggy song. It's just, you know. But... We, you know, he was he ran the record company. He was our producer. He said, "Look, just have a go." So I came up with the arrangement that mm. is the one that you heard. Yeah, here now. I just thought, well, I'll try and rock it up a bit. I'll try and give it a bit of our flavour. <clears throat> he thought it was brilliant. We recorded it, and for six months, nothing happened. Mm. Um, I and, remember. Yeah, and we were just sitting there going, "Oh my God, what have we done?" Anyway, uh, we performed it on Countdown, and. Like straight away, that performance just, it just, the end of that year, 1975, it was the countdown number one record of the year, um, above ABBA and above Sherbet and above Skyhooks or whatever else was around. Uh, so unbelievable. So there's a lot of lessons to be learnt in that, um, uh, just understanding, uh, and, and Robbie's not, you know, the world's most lovable person, um, but... But he had, there was a lot to be learned. There was a lot in, in all that. If you just sort of strip away everything else, you just sort of go, hmm, I'll take that one on board. I'll, I'll, I'll try and learn from that. And Glad All Over was a good follow-up too, <clears throat> wasn't it? Yeah, Glad All Over was great. Um, we Again, it was just taking uh, another song and just giving it a totally, you know, never heard before arrangement mm. of it, uh, which just sort of suited us and... Uh, and so that was that was great, um, but then the band started changing after that. What changed? Well, um, we, it, it was really to do with Keith. Um, Keith uh, was um, who was the the person who you could put in front of a thousand kids. You could put in front of twenty thousand um, at the Canberra Day Festival. You could put in front of two hundred thousand at the um, you know, uh, concert of the decade, and it wouldn't matter. Mm. Um, he would he would just grab that audience from the moment he walked on stage. He would grab them and just turn them around. And even if people had never heard of us before, and and that's how we started. I mean, people who you know would come to a pub and say, "Oh, who are these guys? They look funny." You know, got funny clothes on. Uh, he would just turn it and turn it into a bit of fun, and and everyone would have a great time. And he learned all these skills. Back in in the UK, um, in a band, in a band, um, yeah, you know, starting when he was thirteen and and so forth. But anyway, the thing is that he was he was a, a great front man, a great great front man who could um, win over audiences. That was that was what we needed. But he started changing for, and we didn't understand why. Um, he his performances were not Keith. That's the only way I could put it. Um, and without Keith uh, up front um, doing his thing, it's like a, a football team without, you know, the players up front not being able to perform properly. You sort of go, well, the rest of us are going to struggle a bit as well if, if he's not... Yeah, if the, one of the, if the captain of the team or whatever, mm. yeah. Yeah. So was it a planned finish to the band for you? Oh, for me, um, yes, in a way. Um, what um, Keith had already, it was, it was very difficult, Keith, uh, and we didn't realise till years later that it was an illness that Keith had mm. um, uh, that caused it. It was, 
you know, but back then it was, we didn't know what was going on. Yeah, what's wrong with you, mate? Um, and so we had one more album that we were committed to do, which we did, and it was kind of our more adult album, if you like. A prophetic uh, title. Yes, prophetic. Uh, no, nothing uh, stays the same forever, which was, um, uh, which is a great um, title. Uh, and... Uh, the, the but during the recording of this, which was down in Melbourne at uh, TCS Studios in Melbourne, uh, one day I we arrived at the studio and and remember we we had we were playing to lots of people and had number one records and all that, but um, I remember looking out into the car park and a a, a, a muso drove in, but he had like a, a brand new silver Alfa Romeo. And he was uh, the keyboard player, um, one of the keyboard players in the bootleg band. Now, the bootleg band were nowhere near as successful as we were. They played the hardly any people and, you know, they, they had a couple of hits, but that was about it. And he and I thought, how, did, how does he get this silver out for a mate? What, what does he do to do that? And so I asked one of the engineers, I said, well, you know, how, how, did he inherit it? Or what was the story? He said, no, no, he writes jingles. I said, ah, oh, <laughs> oh, what are jingles? <laughs> so um, uh, there in my little head was, you know, the sea. Ching. Yeah. I thought, okay, um, uh, I've got, we've got to move on. The band's not going to go much further and it's going to be very sad if we keep going on and just sort of fizzle out over, over time uh, or else I can just make my move and just sort of say, look, I think I'm, I'm done which I did. I said, I think I'm done. And pretty much everyone else in the band said, oh, yeah, I suppose we're pretty tired too. We've had enough. I and think I it would have been very hard for them to, to continue without you, mate. Maybe. I just sort of said, look, I don't mind. You know, you just find another guitar player. It's not, I'm just I'm ready to do something else. Yeah, you know? find a new, another yeah. Chinese guitar player. That's right, yeah. Well, <laughs> With the bookends, remember. That's true. This is Peter Rix's conversation with member of 70s group Hush and more recently composer, producer and sound designer Les Gock. For both Peter and Les, the growing success of Hush was a period of learning about the music business and about life on the road. It was an education on the job. In part two, Peter and Les share their stories of how they both came to work together, the touring life and hanging out with Australian rock's finest. That's next time on From the Inside. From the Inside with Peter Ricks. Listener.